This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rabobank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rabobank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to RoboTalks Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. When discussing taking actions to address climate change on farm, it's easy to focus on the uncertainty of future regulations or on things that, in all practical reality, are outside your sphere of control. But what about what you can control? What are the levers or actions that farmers have at their disposal now to address on-farm emissions? I'm your host today, Blake Holgate, and today I'm joined by Fraser McGugan, a farmer who has a very clear understanding of exactly what his on-farm levers are, as he is continuously basing his decisions around what those levers are in a way to best address his on-farm emissions. Fraser and his wife Catherine own a dairy farm in the Eastern Bay of Plenty, with the couple winning the Bay of Plenty Farm Environmental Awards Supreme Award in 2019. He is the current chair of Dairy New Zealand's Climate Change Ambassadors. Fraser, welcome to Growing Our Future podcast. Uh, g'day, thanks for having me, uh, Blake. It's good to be here. No, no, really looking forward to the conversation. And, and before we get into it, we always like the guests to tell us a little bit about themselves. So keen to hear about your, your farming career and your current operation. For us, we're a family farm, if you could put it like that. Uh, we've been in this area since 1898. And um, probably the biggest determination is that I chose to go farming. I've never had to. And uh, the reason I chose it is I saw a few different career opportunities around the world and realised that uh, farming is an integral part of our society. Producing food is a necessity. It's not something which you take lightly, but you're actually being a productive part of the society. And it's really fulfilling to do it. And so um, I've, yeah, given it a good nudge with my wife, Catherine. We've taken over the family farm 12 years ago. And then, yeah, we took on a lot of debt. And uh, it's really motivated us to uh, drive our business, which farming has become, and really work into um, some of these challenges which are facing the industry at the moment. Excellent, great stuff. And, and given you and your family have been farming since 1898, I suspect you've got a very good understanding of sustainability because it's a very impressive story to be able to farm over that period of time. But, you know, when and how did your own on-farm sustainability begin um, within the context of the, the operation you've currently got? Well, I've probably been really lucky in that uh, my father, he was quite an early adapter in fencing waterways, taking out uh, little patches of remaining kaikatea stands and fencing them off, really because he kind of saw the writing on the wall. If you lose an animal in a waterway, it's no use. But then the whole thing is water and troughs is much better for animals. And so just little things like that started me on that journey early on. It just was that little inkling. And then um, I really saw it because we really focused on paying down debt when we were young. We just were profitability driven, which makes a lot of sense for a young person. But 
the writing was on the wall when we had some huge climatic effects as in a massive kind of one in 200 year flood in 2017. And you go, well, there's got to be some things going on outside of our control and we have to change our farming to be more sustainable for the future. And then the effects of climate change really are affecting us. And um, I actually got uh, summed up by one of my workers once, or a manager, she was awesome. She actually said, the one good thing about you is you learn from your mistakes. And so I could see that we were making some mistakes in how we were trying to farm continuously pushing production and not really focusing on our whole environment. And also, one thing I learned when I was in Scotland, uh, farming there, was that um, your social licence is huge. It supersedes a lot. And so you hear the chatter around things. And at that time, we had the climatic effects, we had the chatter around things, friends and family. And you go, let's just change our system. Let's tweak our system, still focus on profitability, but look at sustainability and environmental sustainability and then climate change the elephant in the room was the biggest one. So it really got stuck into what we could try and do there and how we can help others, which is more important. And we'll delve into that soon, but I just find it really interesting when I ask you to explain your sustainability journey that, you know, you taught me through, you know, all the key elements of sustainability, right? You know, profitability, you really needed to come from that strong base. And then there was elements around just good on-farm practice and, and stock preservation and then there was sort of the market levers and, and social license. So obviously taking that quite holistic approach when we're talking about sustainability, which is sometimes often forgotten and, and we do go down that whole just purely environmental aspect. But look, I do want to pick up on, as you said, the climate change, which you said is the elephant in the room. And, and part of that narrative, I suppose, around that, the elephant is, well, there's not really anything we can do now. Let's wait to see where we get more certainty around rules and regulations. And, and that's really a, a technology and innovation solutions that are needed. And, and once they come along, I'm, I'm happy to look at those. But yeah, as I said, not much we can do now. But I think what you want to talk through is actually, there are some things you can do now. And let's elaborate a little bit around what those different levers are, namely, you know, nitrogen, feed, animals and electricity and delve into a bit more details around each of those. And just within your farming environment, Fraser, you know, how are you managing each of those? So let, let's start with nitrogen. What are you doing around nitrogen to help address your emissions? The two big kind of things which come out of farming are methane emissions and nitrous oxide emissions. And so methane, which is a short-lived gas, is different to carbon dioxide, which is from your vehicles and from burning your fossil fuels. Uh, but nitrous oxide is a long-lived gas. It has a high warming potential. And so it will be either priced accordingly or else um, we need to acknowledge it accordingly. And so along those lines, it's really important to use nitrogen efficiently rather than a uh, broad, using it as a supplementary feed, but not really looking at the efficiencies of it. So we looked at it in a price point of view to start with, as in how can we decrease our amount of use and get that same return uh, of productivity. And so we have really put a lot of effort into timing of application, rate of application, and then also proof of placement. And so some of these things are pretty uh, sensible to do is one, we ended up doing the numbers and we bought our own fertilizer spreader because it stacks up 
with timing. To get a response rate of 10 to 1, which people aim for, uh, you've got to get it on at the right time before 10 mils of rain with growing grass, and um, you can't always do that with other contractors. And then to make that repeatable, we just added a um, GPS tracking unit on it. So anyone on my farm, from the newbies or casuals to my father, can throw on the GPS and get proof of placement, not get too much overlap, avoid high risk areas and or nutrient hotspots. So using nitrogen efficiently has meant we've been able to use less. And when you use less, it lowers your footprint of nitrous oxide emission losses. So it makes us money because we get a better response which is important, but it also decreases the end going into our system. And so um, we still use it, uh, nitrogen, but we don't have to use as much. So you mentioned timing and placement. Where did you go about to get some of the information around, you know, when is the right timing and, and on your farm, what does that look like and, and where to place? Is that something just intuitively you knew or did you need to get some help and, and support around that? Yeah, it's pretty well publicised that you've got to try and get 10 mils of rain actively growing pasture, soil temperatures above 8 degrees. I know that a lot of the modelling says don't put nitrogen on in, say, July, but you have to remember that every area is different. So uh, Southland, that may be the case, coastal Northland or Bay of Plenty, when we're actively growing at 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 kilos of growth in late July is different. So yeah, we actually look at our areas specifically uh, we use a lot of the um, the apps for the weather and so you look at what's coming and actually here's a funny little thing is a guy actually said to me once oh if you put some nitrogen out on a plate and it dissolves by the morning it's good enough to put it on well if you think about a plate it's not going into the plate is it so it's actually volatilizing and going into the atmosphere. So you're not actually getting the nitrogen which you want. So that was quite a few years ago. So the amount of understanding around it has increased markedly. So we don't put it on in a drought. But it's just, yeah, trying to do the basics right and just doing it repeatedly. And you can then make money off it. And yeah, that's what it is about. But you also decrease your nitrous oxide emissions. And that's yeah one of the more harmful gases. And in terms of the efficiency gains, just how significant have they been? Are we sort of talking, you know, 1%, 1% to 2% gains, or, or is it more in that 10% plus sphere? Like the one thing which we don't have is we don't have really good modelling of some of this, as in like I'm not a research farm, and so to get it done really well, I wouldn't be able to quantify that. But what I can say is our profitability really stacks up. And so it is looking at growing pasture and getting animals to eat this pasture and not waste it. So we definitely punch above our weight and just doing some simple things and don't have those high costs. Okay, and let's pick up on, you mentioned pasture, so that's probably a good lead into a next lever around feed. What have you been doing around feed to help manage and reduce your emissions? I'll just take you back a little uh, step or two, and that will be that Methane emissions are measured from output. And so this is where it gets a little bit tricky because the more you produce, it is measured that you actually eat more dry matter and so your emissions go higher. And so what we're trying to do is efficiently produce milk out of the pasture which we have on farm. And so we're using our pasture 
efficiently. We're not wasting it or we're not having to bring in extra supplements. And so if we look at uh, different supplements coming from overseas, you have embedded emissions in there. So you have the cost of the diesel to, say, harvest a certain thing. You have freight, you have infrastructure, you have all these other things. So we look at it in that we have the pasture already on our farm. And so if we can efficiently use that as well as we can, we are going to be more methane efficient and that we're just using what is there and so we're not I don't want to get uh, too confused here <laughs> you don't want to add additional uh, methane to our system or extra production above what we need it's about trying to use that pasture growth curve and use what we have to then produce milk efficiently. So I suppose you're saying you know there's the potential risk if you have systems that are built around or have some degree of reliance on supplementary or, or extra feed going forward, you may be exposing yourself to a higher emissions footprint as opposed to looking to just efficiently use the pasture that you have within your existing system. Yeah. And then um, you could argue the point around that is that then there may be other technologies which will come in, which you can then apply to those systems. But at the moment, uh, we have a pasture-based system on a pasture sales model for a product going out the gate. And so to stay kind of true to that and without increasing our cost structure, like there's two ways we can uh, look at this. One is that we focus on our pasture and what we have, or the other way is we heavily intensify our system. And uh, like I think they have air conditioning for their cows in China. Is that really what we're going to ha have to do? Or is that going to be good for our world, intensifying using a lot of energy to do that? Or do we try and pair it back to matching supply and demand and keeping our businesses profitable, but maybe using some different skills and levers to do that? This is where I fall into, hey, let's match pasture and try not to pull in too many supplements uh, when we really, really have to and try and do things efficiently without increasing our inputs. And is that, I suppose, what you'd say, taking potentially a more holistic look when we talk about environmental sustainability? So you may, as you say, you, you could go down the approach of an intensifying your operation and that might help with your emissions problem and or, or help to become more emissions efficient, but that may create a whole range of other environmental challenges and, and issues at the same time. So I suppose what you're saying is, if you know, look more holistically across all of them. This is one that really probably fits with the New Zealand farming model much better than some of those more intensifying approaches. Yeah, I definitely believe it does. It does come down to everyone's individual choice, but I'm looking at uh, submissions coming out from the Bay of Pena Regional Council and that says they will potentially limit stocking numbers. This is to control fresh water and they will have an overarching effect on businesses. And so we have to fit in with that social license. We have to remember that there's not a huge number of farmers. We do really well for our um, the financial side of New Zealand, but we have to fit into that social license of what other people want. And so if people do choose to put these rules on us, I'd actually rather be in front of these rules and regulations so that we are able to clearly negotiate with people in different areas and say, this is what we're doing to try and improve our emissions intensities or decrease our emissions to work with things instead of getting dictated to. It's like trying to be ahead of the uh, legislation. It's much easier to react before you're pushed and it is much easier to choose to make a decision rather than to be told to make a decision. So 
all of this comes back to just really fundamental basics, which we've kind of talked to us about for a long time, about using pasture well in our systems, and the profitability comes from that. And what role do animals play in that? One half of the equation is, is the pasture you've got to feed. The other one is what is eating it and, and how often they're eating and how they're eating it. You know, how does the management or approach to animals really play into that space, Fraser? With our farm in particular, what we've decided to do is uh, we're actually trying to decrease our replacement rate because we see that if we have to carry a calf right through to two years of age, that is lost production if we have to carry more and more calves. So we're trying to decrease our replacement rate. And in regard to that, we're also trying to decrease our stocking rate just to match more correctly the pasture growth curve. But what we're doing is we'll focus on fertility in our animals, you take the intensity off some of these animals and they actually have that ability to really perform well and produce decent numbers off the same area. So you get rid of that maintenance requirement from bringing a calf right the way through. So we've dropped our stocking by our replacement rate to about 17%. And historically, we used to run at 25% to try and get more and more animals. We actually don't need them. We'll focus on longevity because we have really good genetic merit animals. And so that's always been a focus for us. But with that, we will really look forward to when the breeding comes through for low methane emitting animals or lower ones. And this rate and pace of that change will be really neat to be involved with. So a high fertility, high genetic merit herd with lower uh, replacements and lower stocking rate is where we said we were going to fit. And again, it's that theme of efficiency coming through, right? It's efficiency from the animal perspective this time, which again, is just fundamentals of, of good business. And the fourth area we wanted to touch on is, is one that we actually often don't associate necessarily with on-farm emissions, and, and, and that's in part the nature of how electricity is sort of treated within the broader emissions trading scheme. And, and by default, New Zealand farmers are already paying for the emissions associated with, with energy because it's put on at that uh, generator level. But if we do focus on electricity, there are a number of steps you can actually take to reduce the electricity component or energy generation component of emissions that are happening on farm also. Is this something that you actively look at and, and look to take measures in, Fraser? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And this is where um, it kind of gets quite exciting with uh, decreasing our footprint on our farm because I look at my business and I look at my costs and I see things coming and it gets really annoying when you're servicing motorbikes constantly and also trucks and side-by-sides. And so a lot of that stuff, it, you go, oh man, why is this so complicated? Why is it costing me so much? And then we had to put new fuel tanks in to meet regulations. And that was probably the biggest mistake which we made because we've just been able to um, source some really uh, good electric farm bikes, Surons, they're out of China. So we're basically buying them um, through a dealer in Christchurch. But they are such good technology, so simple. And the running costs and emissions are just next to nothing. So what really got me started on this is five o'clock in the morning, you'd start up a motorbike in the shed to roll it out. And it absolutely stinks. You know, there's no two ways about it. If you're stuck in a room with a, a combustion engine, you really do get it. And when I, I do a bit of running, you run along the side of a road and it is just a torrid. You know there's something wrong when you actually pay attention to it. And so what we've decided to do is we've decided to try and push 
where we can, everything into electricity. So probably everyone's got the packs of tools, which are with a rechargeable battery. And then you go, well, actually, I've got all these things and I'm paying for electricity. Why don't I throw some solar panels on my calf shed? So we've just done that. It's kind of neat, eh? Like we're actually generating energy. So we're covering, you know, that chiller, which you have to do in the pre-cool in which everyone's had to upgrade their systems to. They're constantly running. They're constantly actually running for free <laughs> now, except for the use of money for um, putting the system in in the first place. But with a 20% return on investment forecast, it's fantastic. And what I looked at is we've got electric vehicles, we'll pick up electric side-by-sides, we'll probably pick up electric car and modify it because it's just kind of cool. So like an old leaf or something, just to go around the farm and do these things. You don't actually have to have a Hilux Ute all the time, even though we've been down that road and we still have a Hilux Ute, but we will evolve. And when we have this electricity, it actually proofs our system. Like the big picture is that we have power outages in the rural communities. We get affected by the Cyclone Gabriel's three, four days out. When we've got a solar unit, the sun does come out and or batteries in the future, we'll still be able to run our water pumps. We'll be able to run our electric fences. We'll be able to run our core infrastructure. We might not be able to milk until uh, and that's where our generator will come in because it's peak loads. But we're proofing our system so that we can be more resilient for these climatic effects. And at the same time, we're decreasing our emissions. And like we aren't replacing tractors. Diesel has a huge place. It's um, the most efficient big engine there. But as technology evolves, we can actually take on these things. And even the neighbour who just picked up a electric side-by-side the other day, completely different brand I'd never heard of, but he's having a good run out of it. And um, the ability to change is really good because then my workmates who work with me, they're looking at that. And it enables you to actually go, well, I can change. I can think outside the square. I can look at different opportunities I don't have to always look at the negatives. And so our vehicle will change that when it comes up to an electric car and we'll have solar panels on our house. So our house will be resilient. Our freezers won't lose their their coldness and lose everything in there. It's just about simple things which will decrease our emissions footprint, but also our children will understand why we're doing this and they are our future. So it's really quite important that if we take some of these small steps, it may be the beginning and there may be some skeptics, but it is an opportunity to educate, but it's also an opportunity to do things now. And it's it's kind of cool. And it's, yeah, cows don't mind it, you know. And surely only, you know, huge upside for that technology, right? The reality is we're still at the relatively early stages of of all of that and, and the focus and investment that's going in there will we'll only see more and, and better technology come available to use on, on farm, I'd imagine. Yeah, like I'm just waiting for a few more farmers to go to some of these serons and start customising them and making them into a really awesome bike. And like our next bikes is just simply going to be electric. It's so cool what the opportunities are and the speed and the reliability of this new technology is so much better. Like you look at, oh, it's just, it's financially beneficial to do it as well. You know, this stuff all makes sense to do it and to do it now, you know, and it's just like, 
oh, but someone has to lead the way. And uh, I've been really fortunate in that I've been um, surrounded with um, some cool people in the Climate Change Ambassadors through Dairy NZ. And those guys are really um, doing some neat things. They're just critically thinking and looking at different things and just neat people who are looking forward and looking at opportunities and also trying to help other farmers evolve at the same time. And so it's really inspiring to have some of these kind of programs going on. And uh, the Stick Change program, hopefully it'll really kick off and that'll enable more farmers to gather some of these little ideas. Uh, yeah, to elaborate a little bit on, on maybe the ambassadors and the Step Change program for those that are interested in, in learning a little bit more around what we've been discussing, you know, where can they go to to get some information to help inform some of their own decisions they're making? So the Climate Change Ambassadors was formed back in 2017, 18, and that's basically for Dairy NZ having some really good foresight and that legislation was coming at farmers and um, you need to have a group of farmers to actually provide some weight behind uh, some of these ideas and also some of the reality. So in that regard, I um, was able to sit on the Hewaka Ekanoa uh, workstream, farmer workstream, and um, when you get things which don't really work, you can let them know. And it's not always acknowledged, but at least you can put a farmer's point of view on things. And as we know, uh, the discussion goes both ways. But Dairy NZ has actually done an amazing job in lobbying for farmers and making some of these things work. And so as an industry organisation, they're actually working really, really hard for us and our best interests. And so with Farmers as directors and farmers sitting around uh, helping them form those decisions, it's been quite beneficial to be part of that. And the respect in government has actually stopped a whole lot of stuff being thrown at us, which is unworkable. Whereas, but then we really are keen as uh, the climate change ambassadors in leading what we can do. And that's where I'm kind of talking about trying to put some of these ideas out there and then trying to get farmers to pick up on them and you basically pick and choose what fits your system and then you start making strategic change at your pace before legislation forces you to do it. And then you have your suppliers, your milk processors such as Fonterra who are really getting into um, this and I think farmers have considered their scope three. So they're working on their scope ones and twos and scope three will come. So the markets are dictating who they will take milk from based on the emissions profile. And it is interesting because you always have that kickback saying so-and-so country is worse, so-and-so is different. But as long as we're leading the game, other people will follow and they will help. And it, it maintains our market access. Like that's the thing, we're a tiny little country on the bottom of the world. We're not a huge fish. We have to do whatever we can to maintain market access, provide what consumers want, and then do it in the best possible way. If we're at the top of this and climate change and we're addressing it, other people will follow, but it also continuously allows us and it's not a non-tariff trade barrier, which they talk about uh, being applied to us. So it's critical that us farmers, we get on board with these things and we really try and push it. And so in that regard, um, Darren Zeta started up the Step Change Program, which is trying to put in farmers who are farming profitably and sustainably, and then also doing their bit for decreasing their emissions. So it's at the very early stages. So we had a good push at getting that started and maintained. 
And so hopefully it'll really kick into gear. But as farmers, we're not alone. We've got a really good industry group and we've got really good people surrounding us. Uh, you just need to ask the questions every so often. And so we're more than happy to help. If you have any questions, you can find us through Dairy NZ. Now, you obviously got a mindset that's continually looking forward, Fraser, and, and not at the, just at the immediate here and now. You know, when you bring it back to your own farm, what is your vision for your farm in, say, 2030? My f- idea in 2030 is that we'll definitely have seen some really good breeding coming through in our animals and we'll be able to throw those genetics through. And as you know, the average age of a dairy cow is in like six years. So in six years, you're turning over a huge portion of your herd into a low emission animals. I would love to see um, the endophytes in ryegrasses and stuff coming through. So this is a little bit visionary in that it would take government to change legislation to have these genetically engineered organisms, which are safe, but we can then apply it to our farms. So we can change over 20% of our farm in a year, so five years, we could flick our whole pastures because you've got to remember we're dairy farming, we're flat, uh, flat to gently, uh, we don't have any gently rolling, but we can do those things and we can make significant changes to our emissions output. I also see that we will really be um, encompassing electricity and the use of electricity as in our vehicles and our efficient use of it. Like we've really put a lot of effort into our fresh water. And so we pay a lot of attention to decreasing our water use. So you're decreasing your your nutrient losses. And now we'll put that same amount of effort into our decreasing our carbon footprint. And so modeling is really where it's at. Like it's really hard because with water you can see it, you can taste it you know there's issue with this. It's all based on modelling. You can't touch, see, feel. And so as farmers, we have to put a lot of trust into their systems. And so I'll see that the systems will be built really well. Uh, I'd love to see that one one point of call for putting our data in, which would be uh, really good so we aren't replicating things. But also I was driving home today and I grabbed two tonne of um, ammo. And uh, I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if you actually saw the carbon dioxide or the methane emissions or nitrous oxide emissions printed on that bag of different uses of it. So making things really practical so you can actually glance at that bag and go, right, if I get this wrong, when I apply this at the, if I, at the wrong time or the right time, this is what I will grow. This is what I will be losing to the atmosphere. And it's a different way of thinking. And so that you order 40 tonne of palm kernel, you know what the embedded emissions of that are. So it's just, it's a really simple things, but you can actually look at it and you can go, hmm, maybe I won't do that. Maybe I will look at the emissions intensity of the bought-in feeds. Uh, really practical, real simple, probably no one will ever do it. <laughs> but, um, you know, that would be cool if that comes out in 2030 and we're, we're actually in charge of our own destiny. I would hate for legislation to be telling farmers what to do. I prefer we're ahead of the April, but we have to lead. By 2030, I hope we have some really strong leadership coming through and providing the impetus to uh, allow farmers to change. And yeah, young people changing their mindset, maybe from having, like I had to do, by focusing on production all the time and producing big kilos to actually looking at profitability first and sustainability. And it's probably actually in the other order. It's actually sustainability first and then profitability with people mixed in as well. So I'll probably get a little bit dreamy about that and it won't happen overnight, but you just need to take one step at a time and 1%, 1%, 1%, that's what makes 
these things really work. And what do you think those 1% add up to if we look over a time frame to say 2050, Fraser? And I won't necessarily ask you what that vision looks like, but you know, 2050, uh, you know, are we hitting the climate targets? Are we having thriving, profitable dairy farms, sheep and beef farms in New Zealand? You know, if we, if we add all this stuff together, these 1%, is, is that where we get to? I think we definitely can. Like, I can't speak for sheep and beef because it's outside of my uh, skill set. But with dairy farming, I do believe that we can innovate and we can adapt to this growing challenge. And the other thing which you have to remember is I think the environment is actually going to dictate to us very shortly. So we had our worst season last season, and it's not from want of trying. It was because it was extremely wet and extremely warm, which is exactly what the scientists have been saying for ages is how you get a rising sea surface temperature and your events get bigger and bigger. We're right in the middle of this. And so we aren't going to buy our way out of this. The environment is going to tell us. So if we get cheaper money and we intensify our systems, we're only going to exacerbate what's going on. So we actually have to look more at how we can farm with what we've got in a sustainable manner. And that will be what our challenge is to 2050. And I hate it when people say, I won't be around. Yeah, but your children will be. Pay attention to what you'll be leaving for them, the legacy, and try and do things a little bit better. And it's it's not a challenge. It's an opportunity. And um, it's kind of a cool opportunity too. Yeah, and again, I'll reiterate, obviously, a mindset your family's had through the generations given the, the length of time you guys have been farming. Look, finally, are there any sort of other key messages or takeaways that you want to leave with our listeners before we wrap up, Fraser? It's probably going back to uh, my family was responsible for draining this Kaikatea swamp and we did what we needed to do to survive, as in we had to produce for our families. Then my family consolidated this and kept it going as a dairy farm. And then I'm probably responsible for exactly the same thing. It's keeping dairy farming surviving is that we have to adapt and evolve. And so I don't say what they did was wrong at all. They did what was right. And I'm doing now what I believe is right. I think that it's just using those people around you to support you and listening to what others have to say. So when you hear some of these podcasts, <laughs> so a big shout out to Rubberbank, but uh, when you hear these things, actually just listen and then yeah, form your own decisions, just doing one step at a time. That's what I'd like to leave people with. Yeah, great message to wrap up. And, and look, thank you very much, Fraser. Look, really appreciate you you, you coming on and, and sharing your insights. I think there's some good messages around, you know, this this is just the change that this generation is going through. And, you know, you walked me through the, the nitrogen feed animals and even electricity. And, and again, it was about efficiency and there was a profitability and, and you know, almost as a byproduct you know, the result will be reduced emissions. Now, maybe not every aspect of everything you mentioned there will apply to every dairy farmer in every situation in, in New Zealand, but I suspect there's a number of no regrets actions there that actually, if nothing else, it will just improve some efficiencies within their farming systems and look at it through that that mindset and take those 1% steps and gains as, as we have them in, in front of us. So look, thanks again, Fraser. Uh, I said, really appreciate coming on and, and looking forward to uh, continuing to hear how your journey goes going forward. No, thank you very much, Blake, for having me. Thank you for listening to Rabo Talk's Growing Our Future podcast. 
If you're interested in learning more about how Rubberbank can support you to succeed into the future, please go to rubberbank.co.nz. 